Welcome to Al Bernstein Unplugged Unboxing. In a 40-year Hall of Fame career, Al has chronicled some of the greatest moments in boxing history. On this podcast, you get to hear him expand on those memories and talk about the current news in the sport of boxing. You also hear Al interview some of the biggest names in the sport. Here's Al Bernstein Unplugged. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. On this one, we're going to be visiting with two legendary sportscasters, both making a return visit to Unplugged. Uh, Barry Tompkins, who is in the Boxing Hall of Fame and uh, is uh, one of the most versatile sportscasters ever, will be joining us. And that thing I just said about Barry, about being the most versatile sportscaster, well, right there with him is the other gentleman who will be joining us, Tim Ryan, who, of course, among his many uh, attributes, did so much great boxing. Uh, at several networks, principally at, at CBS. Uh, and the reason we have them on the show is to chat about a uh, documentary uh, uh, that is starting on June 6th on Showtime called The Kings, which is uh, all about the four kings, Hagler, Leonard, uh, Hearns, and Duran, uh, that'll be airing for four straight Sundays on Showtime. And so that kind of gave us a good reason to have Barry and uh, Tim on, and we're going to talk about that era in general and those four men uh, with a nod toward this uh, fine documentary, which is uh, a very good one. I've, I've seen it, and it's, it's really terrific. Uh, also, of course, we're going to answer your questions uh, that you send to me, at Al Bernstein on Twitter. And uh, for all of this, we now bring in my co-host, Mr. Trip Mitchell. Hey, Trip, how are you? I'm doing great, Al. And I was lucky enough to move to Vegas in 1990. But during the 80s, Vegas was a small town. And you've alluded to that you socially you'd run into a lot of boxers. And I bet you've got some Four Kings stories. Yeah, you know, um, back then the boxers were a little more accessible. You know, the press and, 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 and sports figures in general, it, there was a little bit more mingling, uh, even on a social basis. And in Las Vegas, you know, back then, for instance, there were no clubs in the casinos, right? So yep. there was this one club in Las Vegas called Botany's, and I've talked about it before on this show, where everybody went. And on a big boxing weekend, you would go there and you'd find all the media, uh, all the, the boxing people, many of the boxers that were in town for not fighting, but for a fight. And there were many times when there'd be maybe two of the four kings or one of the four kings fighting, fighting against someone else. And you'd be there and you'd see Marvin Hagler over here with his group of people and Sugar Ray Leonard over here and Tommy Earns over there, or maybe Duran, depending. And, um, and it was fascinating. Um, and we had some very interesting interactions during that time. And, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the things is that all those guys were fun-loving. They really were. And maybe one of the biggest surprises to boxing fans is Marvin Hagler, when I tell people that, to me, he was one of the most gregarious and fun-loving of all the guys. Uh, and, you know, most people know him as this dour, destruct and destroy kind of fellow. But um, he had fun, as, as did we all back in the 80s in Las Vegas. Yeah, it. Uh, I, I'm sorry to have missed it, but I'm really looking forward to the Showtime documentary. Let's get to some questions. Joe Arias asks, "Who would be the best blockbuster match for Canelo post-plant and unification? Benavidez, Charlo, Andrade, or Mungaya? Well, yeah, he's referring to Caleb Plant and the possibility that in September 
and the likelihood that uh, Canelo will try and unify all the 168-pound titles by facing Caleb Plant. Should Canelo get past Caleb Plant, uh, all those fighters that he mentioned could be in play as an opponent for uh, Canelo. Now, the one that, while all those would be good fights, and I'd be interested in seeing all of them, one of the, the fight I think that is the most interesting to me is uh, David Benavides. Uh, Benavides is a, a former 168-pound champion who never lost the title in the ring. Uh, some were due to his own lapses outside of the ring. And uh, I, I believe that that's the most intriguing fight. Now, for David Benavides to get to that fight, he's got to beat Jose Uscadegui, um, which he's going to fight on August 28th. But the... The synergy uh, it, uh, that makes that fight even more likely, in my opinion, or more appropriate is here you have Benavides fighting in August, almost on the same schedule as um, Canelo fighting uh, in mid-September. Uh, and so they're, you know, they're even fighting on the same schedule. So I think that would be the fight. And, and by the way, I think that would end up being a signature fight for both those fighters. Um Benavides is younger and his career is is not as far along as Canelo. But for both of them, this could be a fight for the ages. I just think it could be spectacular. So that's the one I would go with. Okay. Fernando Ortiz asks, who wins at 122, Manny Pacquiao or Salvador Sanchez? Ah, well, that's fascinating. I will go and talk about the matchup, but the only thing I would say is I would want to see it at 126 pounds, where both men were at, I think, at their per, at their really good weight. Um, that was the weight at which uh, Sanchez fought all the great fighters like Gomez and Azuma Nelson and so many others and before he met his very untimely death at the age of 23. Um, and then Manny Pacquiao fighting the likes of um, uh, Marco Antonio Barrera um, and uh, Eric Morales and Juan Manuel Marquez. So if you put them in the ring at that weight, I guarantee you, you would end up with one of the most fascinating and exciting fights that we could ever possibly see. Uh, I think Sanchez is a uh, maybe a little more of a precise puncher than uh, Pacquiao, that than that Pacquiao at that uh, point uh, for sure. But the attacking nature of Pacquiao, which was so extraordinary then, would have been trouble for Sanchez because uh, there were some other fighters that Sanchez faced that 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 made a good fight of it with him uh, because of their offensive skills. And Sanchez was a great, great fighter, had a few defensive deficiencies. However, there would come a time in that fight when Sanchez would land a beautiful straight right hand against Pacquiao. What would that right hand do to Pacquiao? Uh, good question. And that <laughs> is the question of the day. Because if it hurt him or if it was enough to turn the tide of the fight then Sanchez is going to win. Uh, if I, to me, it is a dead even pick 'em fight uh, with the lefty Pacquiao and the counterpunching uh, offensive machine, the righty Sanchez. If I had to make a pick, I'd probably go with Sanchez, 
but it would be a very tepid pick. And uh, that is one of those time travel fights that, you know, man, I would love to see. So, uh, uh, but I would probably lean just very slightly to Sanchez, but I am a huge believer in Manny Pacquiao, especially down at those other weights. And it would be very few other fighters during the course of history that I'd pick over Pacquiao at that weight other than Sanchez. Uh, we, uh, talking about history, we're going to delve into it with our two guests on this show, uh, two men who are wonderful sportscasters uh, and also very um, sophisticated and elegant men in their uh, their very eclectic tastes in life, which is part of what makes them uh, great. And uh, of course, Barry Tompkins, my partner for eight years on the Showtime uh, or on the ESPN boxing, uh, top ranked boxing show, uh, who is now with Showtime and they're on the Showbox show. And Tim Ryan, who uh, I did get to work with on occasion on pay-per-view fights during the 1980s and several of them involving the uh, the Four Kings. And Tim, of course, uh, along with the great Gil Clancy, made up one of the greatest boxing teams of announcers that has ever been. Uh, uh, he and Gil Clancy, just fantastic. Uh, so in this conversation, we're going to talk with them about Hagler and Leonard and Hearns and Duran and their memories of chronicling those matches and a little bit about um, the documentary that is airing on Showtime on uh, starting on June 6th and then uh, continuing on for three more Sundays. Uh, and it will it's called The King's. And it will uh, be very enlightening for anyone who is old enough to remember that era and enjoyed it, or younger boxing fans who maybe have just checked out some YouTube fights uh, of these great fighters, and they know they're great, but they don't know that much about them. Well, this, this, this series will be uh, highly informational for you. And let me tell you, I lived that uh, era uh, covering those fights and announcing many of those fights, and I learned things in this show that were... Uh, uh, were new to me, so I'm sure everyone else will. Here's our chat with uh, Barry and Tim. Gentlemen, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you both uh, joining me uh, on this uh, show, and I've had the privilege of having each of you on individually, which was uh, charming and wonderful, but uh, having both of you on at the same time has me convinced this will be the greatest show uh, that I've yet done. So don't feel the pressure or anything. <laughs> Pressure's on you. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's right. I forgot. I have <laughs> so if I, so if I ask every question only about foreign policy, that's like on me, right? No okay. problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although you, I'm sure you guys can handle that, but, um, we're of course, uh, you know, uh, Tim, we're, I'm happy to have you back. And uh, when we last had you, we were talking about your great book on someone else's nickel, A Life in Television, Sports, and Travel, which is a delightful book that I can recommend uh, to everyone. And one of, the, one of the, the things that you talk about in that book, of course, is your travels and um, what you did during the 1980s when you were doing boxing, uh, not only on CBS, but also... Uh, many of the pay-per-views involving uh, the Four Kings, which is our topic today uh, in, in relation to the new documentary that's coming out uh, starting June 6th on Showtime. And that era 
was a special era. The 80s were great anyway, and you did so many other fights uh, that weren't related to the Four Kings. How much did the Four Kings, do you think, contribute to that being an extra special uh, decade? Oh, no. Uh, of course, that was huge because uh, mainly because they fought each other and, and most cases, maybe every case uh, more than once. Uh, so when you get the rematches, I think that, you know, adds to the lore of boxing. And uh, if you just have a one off and the one guy fights the other guy and then you kind of don't see the other guy again, uh, that certainly was a big spark during the 80s. But it also was part of the fact that there were so many other exciting young boxers getting a chance to show what they could do during that era. Uh, you know, we, we don't have to list them all because they're all obvious. So, you know, Mancini yeah. and Arguello and Camacho, et cetera. It was just a, it was a great era. Uh, but the fact that you had these four guys who became, uh, you know, to get that name, the Kings, uh, was, was certainly very special to happen in a 10-year span. Yeah, that was truly extraordinary. And Barry, while while uh, Tim and I were kind of doing more of the the the, the pay per views, uh, our involvement at various times would be the pay per view broadcast. You were doing the boxing on HBO at that time, and and more often than not, you were there announcing these shows to be re aired on on HBO. Um, one of the interesting things that is about that is. You were there with one of the kings because Ray Leonard was doing a lot, most of those shows with you. How did that change the dynamic of viewing this uh, this phenomena? Well, you know, it was it's interesting because obviously, in what all of us do, you don't go into any event, and I, I think it's fair to say none of us ever has gone into any event thinking, "Oh boy, I hope." this person or this team or whatever right. it is wins. And that was a dilemma that I had, of course, with Ray, because, and, and I know Tim has the same relationship with Ray, uh, you know, it's like watching the little, your little brother and you and you really want, want him to do well. Uh, but I have to say there's a differentiation between just wanting him to do well and rooting for him. So I think you had to put that aside and, and there was the friendship that you had with Ray, uh, and then on the other hand, there was the fighter that you had to broadcast and had to be very sub uh, objective about. So uh, I can't really say it was ever a real difficulty to do that. Um, you learned a lot by talking to Ray, and I think that made me appreciate what the four, four kings, all four of them, brought to the dance. Did you always get the feeling, and of course, you mentioned that Tim worked with Ray over at CBS as well, though not necessarily on Four Kings fights. Did you always get the feeling Ray was kind of computing as he watched the other three uh, because there was always possibilities he would fight them? No question. I think any of us who knows Ray knows what a student of the game he is. And uh, and that was part of it, you know, and, and he was... You know, I, I, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but I don't think there's any, I think we all prob probably uh, would agree that he stole the fight with Marvin Hagler. And that's exactly what he said. And I know he told you, Tim, and he, he told me too, that's what I'm going to do. And that's what he did. I, th I, I, I don't think Ray gets really enough credit for being the student of the game that he really is. So that's a really good point. Uh, so these men, and in the documentary, they do a good job of it. And uh, Tim, they, they talk a lot about how these, these men kind of rose to prominence and how disparate they were in uh, not only their style in the ring, but their styles and, and life outside the ring. And you had 
you know, close contact, as did we all, with all four of them. Uh, explain to people just how unique and different these guys were uh, as people coming together in this same tent of pressure and, uh, and excitement. Well, I don't think you could get uh, four more different personalities yeah. than the four. Uh, you know, uh, Duran uh, was kind of otherworldly. Uh, and the fact that, uh, you know, he, he came from Panama, obviously, and uh, his, his English was really quite good. Uh, but there was so much of the Latin hero of this small island that he accepted about himself and thrived on. Uh, and it was a show of bravado that uh, really he had much more of that than the other three combined. Um, you know, Ray was, uh, as, as Barry's already described him, he was a, a thoughtful, a very intelligent guy who really uh, thought about everything he was saying as much as every punch he threw in a, in a match. Tommy was uh, essentially kind of a shy guy, Tommy Hearns, uh, outside of the ring. He wasn't really comfortable with the media and so on. He's always polite and very nice and likable, but he was, he was basically shy. Uh, he kind of got out of that a little bit more once he became a champion, but uh, that was more of his nature. Uh, and of course, Marvin was, the, you know, probably said the least of all of them, except when he was really pressed to do so for publicity reasons. But uh, he was a very thoughtful, very self-assured, but, uh, you know, had that kind of chip on his shoulder the whole time of his career that he was not being recognized uh, as, uh, you know, as great a fighter as he was. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very good point. And um, every, all, you know, all of us here uh, had, you know, back then the, the, the relationship with fighters was a little different than it is now. You'd be out socially more often where you'd see them and you'd see their contingencies and their, 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 uh, their, uh, you know, hangers on with them. Uh, and, Barry, the social time of that time by seeing Hagler and Leonard at at Botany's in in uh, in Las Vegas at a club and Tommy Hearns there, it was a different kind of time than it is now, and it kind of added to the whole idea of of these guys in this super competition. Yeah, I don't think there's any question about that, but I think it also really made us realize, and Tim touched upon this, of of how different they were. I mean, they were, you yeah. talk about four, uh, Tim already said this, but you talk about four diverse personalities. Couldn't be more so. You mm -hmm. know, uh, Ray lo obviously loved the spotlight, thrived in the spotlight, handled people as well as, it, handled his public as well as any celebrity I've ever seen. I never saw him refuse anybody a, a, an autograph, but I never saw him stop and engage either. Uh, I thought he did that better than anybody I've ever seen. Marvin, you know, was a blue collar guy. He's a lunch bucket guy. You know, I remember Marvin went, went with his wife, then wife, Bertha, uh, after one of his fights, he rent, they rented a Winnebago and went all around the country for four months, staying in these campgrounds and just talking to the people, you know, to the folks. And uh, Marvin coming back and saying, that was the greatest trip I ever made in my life. Could you ever see Ray Leonard doing that? I don't think so, you know. Uh, <laughs> you know, and... Uh, only, wait, only if there was a Four Seasons that he could stop at on the way. <laughs> I, his his likelihood to do that would be as likely as I would to see you or Tim Ryan eating at a buffet. <laughs> Neither of those. Very true. 
<laughs> I have to say the 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 one thing about this interview is I, I'm thankful that we're not doing it at a restaurant and I didn't have to buy because with the two of you guys and your culinary expertise, I would have to go take a job as with a paper route. <laughs> Did you stop to think we're brothers from a different mother? Because we yeah you know, we both we both love to eat, we both love to travel. Yep. And, and we both like you. So what more is oh. Well, I wasn't sure about that third thing, but I'm happy to hear that. You know, that now, now I feel good. Uh, <laughs> um, so let's talk about some of the fights that, that made this, this special. And, and, you know, all of us each in, you know, we're involved in different fights and uh, different parts of this. But, you know, it all started with the Leonard uh, Duran first fight, which was an extraordinary, uh, uh, you know, event in which Ray Leonard has since... Um, admitted that, you know, uh, Duran, uh, as it's very well pointed out in the, in the King's documentary, literally went to the trouble of make, finding out when Juanita would leave the, the hotel so that he could drive his car up and, and uh, you know, um, and say terrible things to her to get under Ray Leonard's skin. And uh, uh, Ray literally let that get the better of him and and Barry did he acknowledge that like he was he actually understood that that happened didn't he yeah I think he he has said that was the first and only time in his career that he ever abandoned anything that resembled a fight plan you know he just decided at the last minute I'm going to go in there I'm going to fight you know and uh and obviously that was not the right thing to do yeah very huge mistake and it and, and it ended up accosting him and um, when he won the title back, Tim, and he got uh, his chance to fight Tommy Hearns uh, in that the first time he faced Tommy Hearns, I, I, I never forget sitting with Gil Clancy, your wonderful partner, and having breakfast with him. And he was it was early in the, the decade, of course. And he said to me, he said, this is going to be special this fight's going to be special and everything we see from now on from these guys is going to be special. And he totally understood it. And that fight, I think goes down as one of the most remarkable of the clashes between these men. Oh yes. I, um, I think there was a real um, mutual respect about the abilities. I think Ray knew more about how good Hearns was than most other observers. He he didn't take anything for granted with him. He certainly wasn't going to let any kind of personal things like with Duran interfere. And of course, from Tommy, they wouldn't anyway, because that wasn't the, the kind of a man that Hearns uh, is, still is. And so, uh, yeah, I think they were both confident, but they were both kind of, I, I don't think you could have if you had cornered them in a corner <laughs> of a ring and said, are you really sure you can beat that other guy and that other yeah. guy? I don't think you'd get a, a real straightforward answer. Interesting. Were you surprised that uh, it ended up being Tommy Hearns, uh, the boxer completely, because uh, he got hurt in round six? Uh, and, and if that had been a 12-round fight, Tommy Hearns would have won the championship. He probably would have been ahead and won it. It turned out to be Hearns the boxer against Leonard the slugger. Yeah, that was, a, I think, a surprise. Not uh, I'm sure Ray realized because he already had that much respect for what he had seen of him. But uh, I don't think that he believed that the, that would be the course of the fight, if you will, that he'd actually get outboxed. 
by uh, Tommy Hearns. But, you know, Emmanuel Stewart was in some ways almost uh, underrated until Tommy had so much success. But he had done a great job coaching him and uh, training him in, uh, in the gym in Detroit. Uh, Gil and I made a trip there just especially, I guess it was obviously leading up to a fight, but somewhat in advance, but a week or so. Uh, we wanted to see the Kronk gym, and our producers also wanted to do a little kind of a feature thing, as I recall, about the Kronk, because it was a good story unto itself, what was going on there in Detroit. And uh, it, was, it was really impressive to see how the dynamic between Stewart and Hearns. I think Emmanuel gave uh, Tommy much more confidence, needed confidence, that Tommy didn't have in himself when he first started. Uh, once he moved up the ladder and had a couple of good wins, then he, you know, started to think and feel better about himself. But he was not anything like Ray or the most of the other great champions on his way up the ladder and being so sure that he could do it. Interesting. That's intriguing. Yeah, and Emmanuel, oftentimes, uh, as great as he is and as as much success as he has, we we kind of forget that he built Tommy Hearns from the ground up uh, as a youngster. Which and is, had some other good fighters at Gronk, too. It wasn't yeah. uh, Hearns, oh, obviously, gosh, yeah. was a big man, but he turned out a lot of excellent fighters. And, uh, you know, I always just felt that he maybe didn't quite get his due in that respect as a great trainer. Yeah, you did so many on CBS, uh, the Hilmer Kentys, the, you know, all the all the fighters from that gym. You guys uh, on CBS did so many fights of the Kronk fighters. Yes, we did a bunch of them, and you know, and, I, and, and now so long ago, I couldn't come up with a with a list off the top of my head. So uh, just, just going back to to Manny, and uh, I remember a great <laughs> trip we made there, um, and he insisted that after we watched, uh, I guess we were watching Tommy in that case, uh, train, and now they're ready to leave the gym, and it was a beautiful day, and he says, well, "I'll drive you back to your hotel." Well, it was his real role was in his mind was to in his his top-down Cadillac Eldorado convertible, <laughs> he he we were he was going to drive us through his neighborhood, which was essentially the Kronk neighborhood, and uh, because he knew that the all of the people on the, in the neighborhood knew who he was and they recognized that car immediately, and he's got Clancy and Ryan in the back seat. It was really a fun day. I remember <laughs> that to this day. With he'd say, "Well, wave at them." He was like coaching us, you know. You see these people are all yelling out there. Well, give them a wave. You know? And so we just had a blast. We stopped somewhere at a hamburger joint and you know, had a burger and so on. But I, I, that one sticks in my mind as a, as a great day at the Kronk. A, a one-car parade. Yeah. yeah. Really special. <laughs> um, and Barry, you were at uh, – uh, I, I did the, the um, uh, pay-per-view uh, with Al Michaels on the Hearns-Hagler fight – and you, of course, were announcing it uh, for HBO uh, on uh, for the re-air. Tim, were you at? Did you announce that fight for anybody? The first uh, Hearns Hagler, the, the Hagler Hearns fight. No. Okay, no, I, I don't I know was, if you were I there was, or not. Uh, no, um, I I watched on television. It was ABC, wasn't it? Cosell and did, did the live. Well, no, they. I think. Uh, well, it was it was a pay per view because we I did the pay per view on it. But then there was on Hagler Hearns. But then the the Bear, the HBO had the the re air of it. Um, Barry, you you were there uh, uh, of calling that, and of course you were there with Ray Leonard as he uh, as he looked at at that fight. Uh, and I felt leading up to that fight, as we were during the lead up and that evening 
to me, you could, it was palpable. You could feel something dramatic was going to happen. We couldn't imagine it would be as dramatic as it was. Did you kind of feel there was something special in the air? Yeah, now obviously not as much as, as uh, Hagler, uh, Hagler uh, Leonard. That was the one where you really felt right. I, mean, I, I use that word palpable all the time to, yeah. to describe that one. So by comparison, no. But yes, it was that kind of fight. Uh, and it was a real crossroads fight, particularly for Tommy Hearns, I thought. And, and of course, all of us agree, uh, everybody did that fight. You hear all the broadcasts. We all basically said the same thing about the first round, that yeah. it was probably the greatest round of boxing we'd ever seen. I still feel that way. Uh, you know, I, I kind of have that feeling, you know, it's interesting, uh, thinking back on it, especially having watched this doc, uh, I kind of had the feeling, and even then, that, Tommy had some doubt about whether or not he was going to be able to beat Hagler. Somewhere inside of me had some doubt. And I think somewhere in there was that I'm going out on my shield. You know, mm. and I think that's why he fought that first round the way he did. I'm going to get him out of there. I'm going to get him out of there quick. I'm going to give it all I got. And if that's not enough, so be it. And it was so be it. Yeah, that's for sure. You know, I, I hearken back. The reason I, I bring that up is I hearken back, and this is only in retrospect. I didn't feel it that night. But I remember doing, I had to go up to uh, Grossinger's to do a story on Michael Spinks before he fought Mike Tyson. <clears throat> and so we were sitting after dinner. I was sitting on the front porch with Eddie Futch, who we all know and love. And, uh, and I said to Eddie, I said, does, does he have any chance at all of beating Mike Tyson, and Eddie didn't say anything. He just went, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And and uh, and the way the way uh, Spinks fought, however yeah. long that fight went, was he went after Tyson. He did everything he could do, and Tyson knocked him out. And I had that same feeling about what Tommy Hearns was thinking on that night against Marvin Hagler. Well, and the interesting thing is, of course, he twice he came within an eyelash of maybe. Getting it done first, he hurt Hagler with that first right hand, but that was what broke his hand, unfortunately. So that was, you know, the death knell. But then the fact that if he could have hung in there for another round or two, those cuts might have caused the fight to be stopped and Hagler might have ended up losing. Right. But I, I thought I thought he lost his legs before the end of the first round. He did. Amazingly. Yeah. I know, which was which was crazy, but uh, that was an astonishing event to be sure, and probably the you know one of the highlights of that whole Four Kings era, simply because it was so dramatic and so competitive. And Tim, that brings us to the the question of the how competitive they're. You know, some of the Four Kings fights were not competitive, but still exciting. Like you know, watching Tommy Hearns knock out. Roberto Duran uh, was exciting in its own way, uh, even if it wasn't, you know, competitive. And Ray Leonard winning a no mas fight against uh, Duran uh, was unique in its own way, even though, again, it wasn't competitive. So just putting these men in the ring kind of uh, commanded that there would be drama, didn't it? Yes, I think so. And I, and I think that that's, you know, the premise of the uh, documentary, which uh, yeah. I must say they've done a good job with that. I, I might I might uh, quarrel a little bit about the tie into the political. Uh, yeah, thing, I, to be perfectly candid, I agree with you. I, yeah. I, so do I. Yeah, but but nonetheless, it was during that political era that these 
fights took place and uh, that's kind of another sidelight and a point of view. But I, I think that uh, they do capture the personalities of these uh, boxers and their strengths and weaknesses as you know, their own wills, if you will. And I, and I think uh, that comes through very well. I thought some of the, uh, some of the uh, interviews were, were extraordinarily uh, revealing. I mean, things that we know these guys, we were yeah. around. I didn't know much about Duran because I was less around him, but the other three for sure. Um, and uh, it was, I, I think that's a very strong part of the show, but leaving that aside and just going back to your question, I think that the, there was a, a sense of tension every time any two of the four fought each other that was special, the point that you're kind of making it, you had to look forward to, oh, this is going to be interesting, no matter what had occurred previously. I mean, that was what was unusual, that these rematches uh, were so compelling. Very much so, right. And, and, uh, and, and Barry, that brings us to a rematch of, of Tommy Hearns and Sugar Ray Leonard, a, a much delayed one, which, you know, happened uh, at a time when maybe both men were diminished a bit, uh, although Tommy Hearns' career, he was still, after that, have amazing moments, like winning the light heavyweight championship, which I remember doing that fight with Virgil Hood. That was, uh, you know, pretty astonishing. But that second Leonard uh, Hearns fight, which Tommy Hearns needed for validation, and even in a draw, he kind of got it, didn't he? Yeah, I think he did. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure what that fight did for Ray Leonard, but I think for for Tommy Hearns, it was validation. I don't think there's any question about that. It, you know, that fight amongst all of these fights that we're talking about and that are shown on this on this documentary, that one to me had the least impact. And I can't even tell you why. Overall you know? impact, huh? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't even really tell you why. Uh, I thought it was the right decision. I think everybody agreed, and that doesn't often happen, that when there's a draw in a fight that everybody says, yeah, yeah, that seems right. But that was the case in that fight. Yeah, it was it was interesting. And, uh, uh, and, and it kind of, I think the fact that Hearns was able to get those knockdowns, and, uh, and he certainly felt he won the fight, but it was, it, it gave him a sense of, I think, of, a validation after all those years with uh, with um, uh, with Hearns. The funny thing about this whole period is that for all the oh no, I wanted to, you know Tim. I wanted to go back before I say that. I want to go back to we talk about uh, the fights between the four kings. You and I played a small role on this broadcast with you guys, uh, but you did a fight, one of the pay per views in which Hagler fought John the Beast Mugabe, and. Uh, and I think that's one of the uh, most underrated uh, fights in the history of boxing. It so often does not get the credit for being what it was. I actually thought it was one of the top 10 most extraordinary fights I've ever seen in my life. Well, it, I, I agree that it was a, a really exciting fight. How much of it do you think, just I'm backing up on what you just said, was that Mugabe was such an unknown quantity in the yeah. larger picture of boxing. He hadn't built enough of a reputation in the United States that, that American fans, uh, presumably those watching these television fights, really knew much about him. So there's always that kind of thing that when you have a matchup like that, that, well, they know what to expect from the big name champion guy, but they don't know the other guy and they're learning as the fight goes on. 
holy crap, this guy, you know, he's dangerous. He can really fight. And we've had a few others like that uh, over time. But I think you, you make a good comment there. I, I was just thinking, of, for instance, Oscar Bonavena was a pretty darn good heavyweight yeah. fighter, you know, and, uh, and there were others like that that would come to mind if we kept talking here all day. Each of us had come up with some like yeah. that. But yours were about Mugabe, uh, particularly because he was in there against this, you know, terrific, well-known uh, champion fighter. Uh, it, it, was, it was an underrated great fight. It really was astonishing, and uh, um, and and I I, I made a uh, uh, a faux pas on that fight that I will admit to you guys right now. That um, afterwards I was interviewing on that broadcast. I did some work on the undercard, and then I occasionally chimed in during that fight with you and Gil, uh, though very gingerly because I don't want to stop. You know, as I've told you before. On a few telecasts when I was on and and you and I was allowed to talk with you guys, I, you know, I don't want to get in the way of Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire doing a dance <laughs> together. So, you know, you know, Barry, I was very careful to not get in there and say too much, but but occasionally I'd make a comment. Wait but, a uh, which one of us was Ginger Rogers? I, I have to ask. You. Well, I'll let you. You know, Tim's uh, Gill isn't around now to get mad at us, so I'll let you be Fred Astaire. And he's, uh, <laughs> but but I'll tell you what: if you were still alive, as you well know, I would definitely make you Ginger Rogers. <laughs> yes, and I wouldn't blame you on that on that score in that <laughs> circumstance. Would not want to risk his wrath, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, in the interview afterwards, it's so funny because it and it's going to lead up to what we're going to talk about next. Um, I think that Marvin was leading up to uh, retiring that night or kind of retiring. And I kind of cut him off. I was doing the interview and he said, there were all kinds of things going on. He said, would you mind if I, I left? And I thought he meant he wanted to leave the interview. And I said, oh no, Marvin, that's, you know, it's okay. And he looked at me kind of funny. I think what he was trying to allude to is, would you mind if I left the sport? And later I talked to him about that. And I said, were you trying to say you were thinking about retiring? He said, well, I was going to joke with you a little bit about it. I'm like, oh, my God, I just ruined that. And I, and I, I may have ruined Marvin Hagler's uh, potential retirement announcement. <laughs> so not, maybe not my most shining moment, huh? <laughs> oh, um, all your moments shine. Yeah. Uh, but, but the interesting thing is, so all now we have uh, Marvin Hagler uh, deciding – whether he's going to fight Ray Leonard. And during that period, Barry, when you were with Ray, and probably Tim, you may have, was, 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 was Ray still doing any fights with you, Tim, on CBS at that point? I can't remember really. I don't at think he point. was. He, he did a handful of fights, but I, don't, I couldn't put the years yeah, together. It's that. probably more with Barry. Barry, you were with him doing the HBO fights, and there was all the drama. You know, he had the, the, uh, the whole... Uh, he had had his event where he stiffed, effectively stiffed Hagler and decided, you know, uh, no, on second thought, I'm not going to have it. And, and as you know, we know that, you know, on top of everything else, he was a little buzzed that night, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and so maybe not thinking as straight as he'd like to be. But nonetheless, it was, you know, he, he did. We went through all that and the, and he went through the process of 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 deciding whether he's going to fight Hagler. Did you sense in him this conflict uh, of whether he felt that was going to happen or not? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I thought that night, I think if Ray had that back, he would, yeah, he'd like to back. live it over. You know, like we, we all have 
one or two shows in our career that you'd love yes. to have a take well, two. Well, I do. You guys, yeah. I'm not so sure. <laughs> I, I have many. No, I'm <laughs> sure. I'm with Barry on that. <laughs> <laughs> but, and I'm sure that's the case with Ray on that night. Uh, that did not do him any favors in anybody's mind. I don't, I don't, I don't believe. I don't think Ray at that point, I think Ray was sincere at that point. I don't like the way he played it. But I think he was for real in that yeah. as much as Ray can be for real and I'm done, I'm not fighting anymore at that time. Uh, I think he was for real. Um, I don't think he thought about fighting Marvin Hagler. And now, the, now this has become pretty public, but you and I have talked about this many times, Al. But, uh, and it was in the documentary, not quite as accurately as it really happened. But uh, after the uh, Hagler-Duran fight, at the end of that fight, when the fight was over, Duran came over, stuck his head between the ropes. Ray and I were ringside, and Duran said to Ray, you can beat this guy. And I really believe it wasn't until that moment that Ray really gave serious consideration to fighting Marvin Hagler. Um, and it wasn't long after that, and I've told this story on your show before, but Ray and I were doing a fight in Florida. It was a Macho Camacho fight. And Ray called and said, let's have lunch. And, and he had chartered this boat. And so we're sitting up on the, on the bow of the boat. And he said, uh, you want to know how to beat Marvin Hagler? Here's how you beat Marvin Hagler. And he laid out exactly the plan that he used. It was more than a year later to beat him. You know, that was you, you have to flurry three times for 15 seconds in every round. And you have to be sure to do it in the last 15 seconds of the round. And he said, you'll steal the fight. And I think that's obviously, in my opinion, at least that's exactly what he did. I think all of us agree he stole the fight. Uh, but that was before the fight was even signed. That was like three months before the fight was even signed. And he never wavered from that. That's exactly how he trained. And that's exactly how he fought him. It is indeed. And uh, Tim, you and uh, Gil did that fight together. And, uh, I, you know, I, I love the call you guys had on it. Uh for a variety of reasons, because you picked up on the ebbs and flows of that fight beautifully. And that was one of those fights that, in my opinion, uh, required that because there was a, a lot of subtle shifts back and forth in that fight. Uh, were you surprised first? Were you surprised that Hagler came out and fought right handed for the first three rounds? Well, uh, Gil Clancy was shocked, yeah. <laughs> and he said so. I mean, he didn't use yeah, that. Yeah, the air. He, he was quick to comment on, you know, what's he doing? Why is he doing that? Uh, uh, you know, this is not what he should be doing. He's giving away uh, rounds here early on because he's not effectively uh, fighting uh, in the opposite direction of his southpaw. So um, we were naturally very cognizant of how that would play out after when he went back to orthodox. What's happening now? Is he able to gain back from what we felt he had given away? Right. And that was going to be in doubt the rest of the way because neither fighter was able to really start to dominate one or the other. It was very close all the way, but you had to keep thinking back. Man, he gave him two or three rounds right there at the yeah. outset. And when he did turn back to lefty, there were um, he had some very good moments, uh, Hagler, especially in that ninth round and, and, and going through uh, as he continued. So things shifted back and it ended up being, you know, a very close, what looked like a razor thin fight. 
how shocked were you to hear uh, Jojo Guerra's scorecard, number one? And, and I'm going to ask you this question. I'm going to ask the esteemed Mr. Tompkins this question as well, which you can demure if you'd like. Uh, number one, how surprised were you about Guerra? And two, who did you think won the fight? Well, number one, I guess the oldest line is, uh, what fight was he watching, right? Yeah. Uh, it was absurd. And I, I hate to think that because naturally in the sport of boxing, you know, there are going to be thousands of people who are going to say, yeah. hey, this guy was on the take, whatever, you know, and, and I'm not prepared to go down that road because there's no evidence. And uh, I, I don't know, again, what fight he was watching. Um, in terms of uh, the finish of it, uh, I've told the story several times. I, I had Hagler winning. Uh, you know, by a point, and um, and Gill, it did as well, and uh, so we the next morning because we saw Ray after the fight somewhere somehow the in the, the gathering of all of that stuff that goes on, and um, trainer I knew this that the trainer his 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 manager Mike trainer had a um, a video set up in his offices or wherever we we somehow I was able to get the CBS tapes. And I had said to Ray, uh, he asked us, how did you score? And I said, well, I had Hagler, sorry, Ray, but I had Hagler close. And, and Gil said, well, I had you close, but, uh, you know, it was, uh, I, I could easily go the other way. So now Ray's a little kind of like, hey, you know, <laughs> hey, guys, kind of that attitude. So I said, well, let's look at it tomorrow morning. And I didn't think he'd agree. And he did. So wow. we set this up in trainer's office. I got the I got the video from CBS and, and we played it the next morning. We watched the whole thing. We had our scorecards, guilt and mine from the from the night before in front of us. And of course, Ray would debate every round that we said, okay, that was Hagler's or me or Gil, whatever. And, and he debated immediately, no, no, well, maybe that one. And it was like he was actually scoring the fight himself as we were going along. And it was great fun. And I must say his attitude was terrific uh, about it. Of course, you know, he got the decision, so he was in a good mood anyway. Um, and, but he'd be on me for, how could you know I won that round? And we had a great, time doing it uh and i i respect it and, and loved him even more for him you know taking this on but i also knew that he was damn curious about seeing that replay right then and why we thought or i thought that he had had uh, lost the fight close he wanted to be there to do that otherwise he'd still be in bed with a hangover <laughs> <laughs> yeah for sure barry so i'm gonna ask you two things about it. i'm gonna ask you uh, your opinion on who won and did you do the uh uh were you did you do uh that fight f uh well wait you and i were together already by then on espn weren't we no i i did that that was still hbo oh yeah so you did that fight in the rear uh, i yeah you know what tim and i were talking about this the other day which did you do live which did i do live which yes, right. neither one of us Maybe this speaks to us. I don't know. <laughs> but it's neither hard one to remember, us, isn't it? Which we did live and which one. So I couldn't honestly tell you. If you asked me, I would say it was live, but it probably wasn't. Yeah. So, uh, so, but anyway, so you, uh, after you looked at that fight and did it and whatever, what was your uh, final opinion of who won the fight? Uh, well, I had Ray winning it as close as Tim had Hagrid right. winning it. And had the cards been. Uh, had that one card not been as crazy as it was. Right, exactly. I, you know, you can make a case either way, right. and I wouldn't have argued either way. You know, I I felt like 
well, like I said, I felt like Ray stole the fight. He did yeah. exactly what he told me he was going to do, and he went out and did it, I thought. Uh, you know, there were many rounds in that fight that you could say you could make a case either way. Uh, it was a close fight. You know, that's that's like a lot of them are. And uh, yeah, so I had Ray close. That one scorecard that's so lopsided, and it's funny, I was talking to somebody about it just this very day, and they made the point that what if social media were then? Oh my God! Oh. Wow. <laughs> you know, there would have been hell to pay. Oh. Twitter, Twitter would have literally exploded, right? Yes. Yeah, that's that is pretty crazy. Well, I'm gonna uh, uh, I'm gonna say that I lean toward uh, uh, Tim's idea. I thought I thought Hagler by the narrowest of margins, and it and you you speak to the point that nobody would have a problem with it being a narrow. Uh, you know, split one way or the other. I bumped into, was it Lou de Filippo, right? Who, uh, who had scored it for Hagler. He was one of the, at the airport and he was almost kind of sheepish. He said, I, that's the way I saw the fight. I said, well, I saw it that way too. So he was, um, you know, cause he probably was worried that he was going to get, uh, you know, get a hard time over it. So this era comes to an end with, um, a, uh, a lackluster, fight with uh, Roberto Duran and uh, and Leonard uh, at the Mirage. It was not very, uh, I mean, I, I, I remember hosting with Jim Hill and I believe Tim, you called that fight. Uh, it was outdoors at the Mirage and it didn't, it might've been, it was just felt meaningless and it didn't, it wasn't a very good fight, but it put an end to the, to the, the rivalry uh, of the four Kings. And when you guys look back at that, at the at those men and that era uh is it something that could ever be duplicated or is boxing such a different sport and is uh, are we in such a different space that we could never feel that kind of rivalry again hmm uh, you take that first barry will i give it another thought all right there you well, go well, Good. I, I, I think nice stall, uh, i don't I, my my simple answer al would be no yeah. And, and the reason for it is now you know, there's too many chefs, you know, it, yeah. you know, if you're on Showtime, you're not going to be on Fox. If yeah, you're that's on Fox, right. You're not going to be on ESPN. If you're on ESPN, you're not going to be on either of the others. Right. So as a result of that, we're not getting those compelling matchups at the time that they really should be. Right. Fought. Uh, and I also think that boxing then was and, and this is a witness in the documentary where Dan Rather is talking about the fight upcoming sure. and, you know, some of the big news people are talking, Tom Brokaw was on there talking about the fight. That's not happening anymore. And I think boxing was much more of a mainstream sport then. Uh, and now I think it's become a niche sport, you know, and that yeah. it doesn't affect the ratings. It still has very solid ratings. But, you know, I can only speak from my own personal, uh, you know, I live out here on the West Coast, uh, and, and, as Tim does now too, although it's now the Canadian West Coast. But, uh but uh, people don't talk about boxing. I not, I bet I bet I don't have a friend, not anybody that I know, outside of the industry, who's who could tell you even one champion. If you ask them name a boxer, they would probably say Floyd Mayweather and Mike Tyson. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's I think that's the rule rather than the exception. So it's become yeah. a niche sport, and and for that reason. Uh, and the, and the fact that there are just too many people involved in it now on a promotional end, uh, I can't see that era ever happening again. Yeah. What do you think, Tim? 
I would I'd agree with uh, totally with uh, Barry's uh, description. I I couldn't add to it because I that's been my feeling too. Uh, even to the point where um, you know I find myself kind of seeking out the fights I should watch rather than just be you know right. uh, a fight fan tuning in uh, every week whatever to see what's what's there. And uh, we don't have the compelling figures in the ring that that this era did that we're talking about of uh, the eighties. Uh, in the time of the Four Kings. Uh, there's one or two people that suddenly get some attention. Uh, I don't think boxing has been helped by, God forbid, the cage fighting uh, world uh, mm -hmm. and the growth of that. Um, I, I just, uh, I can't deal with it, frankly. I don't consider it a sport, um, but it has drawn uh, an audience. And I think that that's uh, certainly been hurtful to people who might normally be boxing fans, finding something um, more uh, compelling to them for reasons that escape me. But uh, <laughs> so I, I, at the end of the day, I, I, uh, yeah. I agree with the Barry totally. Yeah, it'd be pretty tough to create to recreate that. And of course, they were such compelling figures. The thing that came closest, I think, afterwards uh, was the the, the uh, four man rivalry of uh, Marco Antonio Barrero, uh, Rafael Marquez, or I mean. Um, Juan Manuel Marquez, Pacquiao, and Eric Morales, in which these four men in the early 2000s fought each other and put on fights that were so staggeringly good. And, and I think that was their, their viewed as the four kings in a way by uh, the Hispanic audience of boxing. So they, they kind of came close to it. But yeah, it'd be a very difficult thing. So now my most important question uh, of this whole interview is if... Barry Tompkins and uh, Tim Ryan decided tomorrow, and maybe this will happen based on this interview, to start up a restaurant uh, uh, together. Okay, what cuisine would it be? What What would you guys agree on uh, in terms of how it would be presented, and what cuisine? Because you've sampled and are have expertise on every cuisine. Good, okay. Timmy, take that one. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, I'd have to go Italian because my wife's heritage is there. She's a okay. good Italian cook herself, and her grandmother taught her a real, uh, an Italian from Italy uh, taught her. So uh, I'd have to go Italian with French as a very close uh, second because uh, we spent a lot of time in, yeah. in France, and, and uh, uh, that would be a close one. But like in boxing, I'd, I'd give a one-point edge to uh, Italian. <laughs> there you go. And Barry, would he be able to convince you to go with Italian as part? As well, part? I, lo I love Italian food, but of course I'm Jewish, so obviously it would be Chinese. Yes. Mandatory. Here's what I think would happen. I think you guys would uh, ultimately end up uh, making a compromise and it would be French. That's That would be where I would go with that. Um, that I think that you'd you'd end up compromising uh, probably in going that. So here's another question for you guys: Did you two ever work on the same show anywhere? Obviously, you're both hosts, but did you guys ever work together on the same show? I don't think so. I, no, probably I, not. No, I don't think so. I, well, I, we did we did local news at WNBC in New York. Yeah, uh, oh, right. I owe, I owe to Tim Ryan. I mean, Tim was the guy that he he touted me to the people in New York and called me when I was leaving San Francisco. Um, and that's how I wound up working in New York was because of Tim. Tim and I, incidentally, I've known Tim probably 20 years longer than I've known you, Al. Yeah. Which is really scary. 
<laughs> he was doing hockey out here in, yeah. in the Bay Area. And I was doing local news. And that's that was, right. I think, what, 1927, was it? Somewhere <laughs> Not quite. Hey, don't beat me up too much. <laughs> 19, 1967 to 1969, right. the California right. Seals, first uh, NHL expansion and all of that. Uh, and yes, that's we met during that era. That means we're just about 50 now, aren't we? Yes. Yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> we were very, very good math. Yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> your nose is growing a little bit, Tim, but just a little bit. That's, but that's okay. You're 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 very close. Uh, you guys are uh, two of the greatest sportscasters that have ever lived. Period. End of sentence. Uh, end of paragraph. And uh, if somebody wants to find out a little bit more about uh, not just Tim as a sportscaster, but Tim's uh, uh, life and of travel and uh, and and his approach to the world. Uh, they can get his book on someone else's nickel, a life in television, sports, and travel. Uh, no one has yet talked you into writing a book yet, Barry, which I am. Uh, I feel is a personal uh, failure. But <laughs> well, I, I'm on his get, part I'm of yours. Get, <laughs> yes, yeah. I, personal failure on my part that I haven't convinced you and your wife, who of course is. I probably probably you don't want to write a book because it's daunting when you have somebody in the family who's such a great writer, right? Yeah, you know what? I never. And I, you I are never, you are a fantastic writer. Tim and I had a conversation just the other day, and I I, I kept mentioning my wife, and I never mentioned Tim. Her name is Ryan. You know? <laughs> yes, good point. Yeah, yeah very I, married, I married a Ryan. Not only do but, I have a good friend. Oh, I thought Ryan. you were going to say you, you you gave her that name after knowing me. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, Joan Ryan, oddly enough. So uh, yeah, I, know, Joan, Joan Ryan has uh, has her own uh, her own resume. Right, yeah, does. that's for she sure. Does. Yeah, very much, very much so, gentlemen. No, I can't keep, tell you how much. People keep trying. People keep talking to me about writing a book. Quite frankly, and I I thought Tim's book was so good, and I really mean this. If I were to write a book, it, it would probably be of that ilk. And yeah. I'm sorry, but that number's been taken and taken very well. You know? well yeah, I, yeah, it's funny. When I was reading Tim's book, I was thinking of you and I was thinking that is exactly the way you would uh, the way you would write it. Um, so uh, but I will we'll get one out of you before uh, before too long. I, I'm confident. Um, hey, you guys are the best. And uh, man, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this and uh, and and just remember all this great stuff. Well, I certainly recommend uh, folks who love boxing uh, to uh, watch the uh, documentary. It's extremely well done. I think I uh, may, may mention it earlier. I know Barry feels this too. Uh, the interview portions with the, with the principals, the kings, uh, as best they could, um, uh, particularly obviously with uh, uh, with uh, Leonard and and to a lesser degree with Hagler, um, they got some excellent stuff that a lot of uh, boxing fans wouldn't have heard otherwise. So uh, I commend the producers in that regard. Yeah, very well done, I think, and really worth a watch. And uh, can't tell you how great it's been to be with two guys I not only really respect but have such a long time friendship with. It's been great. Likewise. All right, guys, thank you so much. This is a, a great treat. And uh, um, and maybe down the road, I'll corral you again. And what I'll do is I'll do it on a special, uh, uh, perhaps if there's a special culinary day that I can get you on, I'll, I'll, I'll bring you on for <laughs> we that. We should just do it around a table. We don't have to do it on Zoom anymore. On that. I, I like that. It's kind of like comedians in, in cars or whatever it is, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now yeah. you're on to something. 
We'll do that. Let's gather. We, uh, we'll get you in Las Vegas once the doors are open everywhere now. I love that. That's yeah, that way idea. you get to pay. <laughs> yeah. I, hey, and yeah, exactly. I knew that I was going to get, I knew that I was going to have to pay. And what's the great, well, what, Barry, where's the French restaurant that we go to here in Las Vegas? Uh, we, get to pick, we get to pick the place. That's all yeah, I, I know. Yeah, I, I'm sure you're going to get to pick the place. I think that's fair. And my wife will divorce me when I go broke. But other than that, don't feel guilty or anything. Right. <laughs> I love you guys. Take care. Thanks. Great, Great, Great to be with you. Great to be with you. So I hope you enjoyed the chat I had with uh, Barry Tompkins and uh, Tim Ryan, two wonderful guys. And uh, Tripp, I think everybody that sees them can see why they're so enjoyable to be around and why they have had these long and f great careers as sportscasters. Well, two of the nicest guys. And, uh, you know, I, I there might be a couple jerks out there, but by and large, the announcers yeah. that I've met involved in boxing are really good guys and women for that matter. The vast majority of, of sportscasters in general, uh, I agree with you, you know, every every every. Uh, you know, career and every group of professionals is going to have some people that you, you know, you might not dig. But for the most part, yes, I agree. The vast majority of people uh, that I've worked with, and you're pointing out it's the same for you, have been really delightful, um, have been fun and have wanted to just get the job done and and enjoy life. And they certainly know how to enjoy life. Uh, <laughs> to, as we said during the interview, you know, we talked about their their amazing culinary expertise when it comes to picking out expensive restaurants. Uh, you know, Barry and I, we, we started out the, the ESPN series and we would dine with the producer, director, and several other uh, of the, you know, the production team. And as we went on, it kept culling its way down to, because everybody was bailing because we literally were doing a show a week. And Barry chose the restaurant pretty much every week. And after a while, every week was for some of the folks doing it were, you know, it was an expensive proposition. Eventually it was down to Barry and I, you know, <laughs> and I, and to support that, I had to get a paper route. So that was, you know, <laughs> we, we well, lost everybody. And I said, you know, Barry, we could try to eat at a more moderately priced restaurant, but he was having nothing. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's not Barry. And those, I really, one of the projects I've talked that I would love to see you do is write a book about those days, the ESPN Traveling Circus, because you guys were one of, if not probably the first live broadcast that ESPN would do which seems so foreign now with all the networks and all the broadcasts, but you guys represented ESPN in the beginning. Yeah. The, that show was, was ESPN at the start. You know, they were, they had monster trucks and a few tennis tournaments that they re-aired and some football games that they'd occasionally re-air and boxing and boxing took up most of the, 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 the time on the network, our top ranked series, we did 40, I just said this the other day to my son. He couldn't. He was, he was like saying, "Really? We did forty-eight shows a, a year, you know, which is the most I think. You know, Top Rank undertook that proposition to do it, uh, and I, I can't believe to this time there has never been a series that has been that active and done that many shows. Close was the USA uh, Network series at the same time. They were pretty close. They did one a week for most of the year, and I'm going to say maybe even as much as us. But since those two, there's never been, never been a, a series like that.
Well, great. And I uh, want to switch subjects to one of the nicest guys in boxing, Nonito Donaire, with a wonderful win, and you got a chance to cover it. Yeah, Nonito Donaire, uh, at age 38, did something extraordinary. He fought, this past week, fought um, Nordino Bali, a you know, a very, very good fighter, an undefeated uh, Bantamweight champion who was a two-time Olympian, uh, 34 years of age. But only the only reason he's a little bit more advanced at 34 is because he turned pro so late. He was not a shop-worn fighter by any stretch of the imagination. And I've been in the kind of ring wars that Donaire had been in. So Ubali went in a slight favorite in the fight. Nonito Donaire told us all in advance that he knew how to counterpunch Ubali coming in and knew his pattern, and that would be the key to the whole thing. That's exactly what he did. And and back at 118 pounds, which was the the original weight he had, and, and for many years he went up in weight, and I always thought that was a mistake for him. And how you can get back down in weight, very few fighters do it in their late 30s. It's almost unheard of. Coming back down to that weight, he retained his power punching and he knocked out Ubali with some uh, amazing uh, counter punches, left hooks mostly, some uppercuts. And uh, he served notice that he's back. And now we have a, a, a Showtime match later in the um, uh, in the summer with uh, John Riel Casimero, uh, the Bantamweight champion, taking on uh, Rigandau, Guillermo Rigandau, a former uh, foe of uh, Donaire back in the day at 118 when uh, Rigandau uh, beat Donaire by decision in what was a really big fight at that time. So he could face the winner of that fight, or he might want to face uh, Naoya uh, um, Inoue, the uh, the man who he had a fight of the year with uh, about a year ago. Um which he lost the decision, but showed that he was back in great form. So the world is, uh, is Nonito Donaire's oyster. And what he did was truly extraordinary on what was a great night of fights. Actually, our second, our third or fourth straight um, night of, of excellent matches. So that was a lot of fun. Um, our friend Tommy Ankello has his world-class boxing channel on YouTube. We urge you to take a look at it and uh, see some great informational and historical uh, videos. Uh, on our next show, we're going to be chatting with Angelo Leo, who will be uh, participating uh, on a future Showtime uh, event. And um, he's a terrific fighter, 122 pounds, a division that is loaded with good fighters. And uh, so we'll have that next time out, Trip. Well, can I get your blood pressure up before we go? Sure, go ahead. I got one more question. Dr. Oh, Rob excellent. Bell. We got another question. Very yeah, good. but okay. And I don't want to end on a uh, controversial note, but this is the sport of boxing. <laughs> what was the most egregious decision mm. in the sport? And he mentioned Chavez Meldrick Taylor as one to be upset about. But uh, go ahead. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, there are so many, aren't there? You know, I mean, we. The, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, and that one, of course, the Taylor Chavez refers to a referee's decision in the case of Richard Steele stopping the fight with only seconds left to go. But more of the decisions that we get distressed about are probably in the judge's hands. Uh, I'm going to keep in the mode of the four kings. And this is one of many, but I'll pick this one. Uh, the 
For the first fight between Marvin Hagler and Vito Antifermo, in which Antifermo has the middleweight crown, and Marvin Hagler finally got an opportunity to fight for that crown, and many believe much later than he should have. Well, that injustice was not the last one he would suffer having the fight too late, because over 15 rounds, he thoroughly outboxed Vito Antifermo, opened up multiple cuts on Antifermo's face. Of course, he was known as a person that got cut a lot, but Hagler just beat him to a pulp. One, I'm going to say conservatively 10 rounds, probably 11 rounds in that fight, 15-round fight at that time. And uh, the judges had it scored. Uh, Dwayne Ford had it 145-141 for uh, Hagler. Uh, Hal Miller had it scored a draw at 142, I think 143-143. Uh, and another judge, Adobe Shirley, had it for antifermal by two points. Uh, so it ended up being a draw. They were all wrong because Hagler won that fight dramatically, even bigger than Dwayne Ford's uh, card had it. And, uh, you know, it was the foreshadowing of, of other bad scorecards that uh, Hagler would get. I could never figure out for the life of me why this man who stayed at one weight class his whole, his whole career, same two managers and trainers his whole career, was a great ambassador for the sport of boxing. Why he got such little respect from the boxing hierarchy is beyond my comprehension. You know, we say we want athletes who represent sports in a great way, and then when we get them, we treat the, the guys that are the squeaky wheels better, the guys that complain more, the guys that make more trouble, or, or, or in some cases the women that do it, uh, depending on whether it's women's athletics, they end up getting uh, people bending over backwards for sometimes. So uh, it never ceased to amaze me that he had such trouble with the judges. But that one was the uh, portent of things to come. And luckily, he did get a chance to win the world title. And uh, did uh, against Alan Minter, would fight Antifermo again and knock him out and uh, re-race any doubts about who is the better fighter. And um, it was, uh, so that one probably was, I'm going to list that my, as my worst one this time. But if we, we get to ask that question down the road, I'll probably pick another one that because uh, there's plenty to choose from for sure. Um, well, thanks to Barry Tompkins and Tim Ryan for visiting with us today. Uh, thanks to the folks at Let's Do Something Productions for making this possible. My thanks to Trip for his fine job, as always. And most of all, thanks to you for checking out our show. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it, and um, we'll see you next time.